0: Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we reviewed the trial testimony of Jeannie Seconder. In this installment, we begin our coverage of the testimony of Ronnie Crosby, a former law partner of Alex Murdoch. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? It is the afternoon of February 7th, 2023, day 10 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. In our last episode, the prosecution and defense both questioned Jeannie Seckinger, the CFO of the law firm where Alex Murdoch was a partner. Sekinger testified that she discovered financial irregularities which led to the discovery of the defendant's misappropriation of funds belonging to the firm and its clients. As we begin today, the court returns from the lunch break, and the state calls Ronnie Crosby to the witness stand. While we did cover Mr. Crosby's appearance during an in-camera hearing before Judge Clifton Newman in episode 73 of this eighth season of Jury Duty, His testimony at trial is far more detailed and extensive than his earlier appearance. Consequently, we will give it an in-depth review. Mr. Crosby is a clean-shaven man in his 50s, sporting short blonde hair. He wears a navy blue suit, a white dress shirt, and a pink tie. Creighton Waters handles the questioning for the prosecution. He begins by asking Mr. Crosby what he does and where he works. He tells Waters that he is a partner in the Parker Law Group. Formerly known as Peters Murdoch, Parker, Eltsroth and Dietrich, or PMPED, the law firm in which Alex Murdoch was also a partner. Do you know the defendant, Alec Murdoch? I do. You see him here in the courtroom? I do.
1: Can you point him out to the jury? He is seated at seated at defense table between mister Hart Bootley and Mr.
2: Griffin. I believe he has a blue blazer on.
1: Your Honor, can the record
2: reflect he's identified the defendant?
1: It does. When it was still PMPD, did Alec Murdoch, was he a partner in the law firm that you were part of? He was. And as a result of Mr. Murdoch's actions, is that law firm kind of changed its name now to Parker? Or is that one of the reasons? Or how would you explain that? Well,
2: yes. As a result of the actions that you heard about earlier today, we did change not only the name of the law firm, but to a separate a legal entity.
1: How long have you been with, and we're just, let's just go back and call it PMPED before all this happened. How long had you been with PMPED? Uh, I started
2: in the summer of 94, so almost 30 years now. And
1: when did you first get to know the defendant?
2: Sometime in the late 90s. I probably met him before then when I was working as a, a clerk for a, a judge, Judge Smoke, whose picture's here in the courtroom. Uh, probably met him in, in court, but met him um Really think I started getting to know him at at the time of his grandfather his grandfather's death, okay, which would have been in the late 90s. And what was his grandfather's name? Randolph Murdoch Jr. or the second, and he went by the um, name of uh, nickname of Buster.
1: Was Buster in the law firm as well?
2: He was there when I started. Um, he would come hold off uh, come into the office. Yeah, he was he was there. I don't think he was a principal or, or any kind of equity partner, but he was he was there. Yes.
1: Uh, over the years, did the defendant become? Did you become a partner in the firm? I did. And what year do you, roughly do you recall becoming a partner in the firm? I would
2: say somewhere around ninety nine to two thousand.
1: And did the defendant become a partner in the firm as well?
2: Yes, he came to work sometime in the late nineties, early two thousand, um, and then would have become a partner probably
1: somewhere around two thousand four, two thousand five. He's been your law partner up until twenty twenty one. From that time. That's correct. Just real quick before we move on, under the uh, the agreement that the partners had, what is the rule as it relates to fees that a partner earns during the course of the year? All, all fees belong to the law firm. And uh, just very quickly, uh, explain to the jury very quickly just the compensation. Is most of the compensation for a partner received during the year or in one lump sum at the end of the year?
2: Well, as Ms. Seconder laid out earlier, we receive a salary. And then at the end of the year, we divide uh, net profits, um, which would generally be the a larger portion of your income. Although not always, sometimes depending on uh, how someone's year went, uh, you may not get any much of any anything as a bonus at the end of the year if you if your work did not generate s- sufficient fees to overcome uh, the amount of overhead expenses that were was assigned to the individual attorney. Yeah.
1: Generally, though, most of the compensation is in that uh, end of the year bonus. That's fair to say. Is that the case, to your understanding, for Alec? Well, not just Alec, but it was for all of us. So, your observation uh, over the years did Alec had a, a relatively lucrative practice?
2: Yes, he did. He had up and down years, like all people who do plaintiff's work. But yeah, he he was uh, had a lot of a good
1: clientele. Some years he would get bonuses of six and seven figures, to your recollection. Uh, Yes, he could. Uh, is it common in plaintiff's cases for lawyers, let's say, within the firm or lawyers uh, within the firm and, and lawyers outside of the firm to share cases?
2: Yes, my, I, I, I do that probably 70% of my practices with other law firms.
1: And in that instance, uh, does do you have to split the fee in the event there's a recovery by settlement or trial?
2: Yes, there's uh, if there's a recovery uh, up front before when the trial, the case begins, the work begins. There's an agreement on how the fees going to be split with the other law firm. Sometimes there may be a three, you know, multiple law
1: firms in a, a given case. And uh, are there instances then when the other law firm is responsible for dispersing the money, including dispersing the fees to PMPD? Yes, that happens quite often. And if a lawyer in PMPD were to have those fees made out to him, or her instead of the firm, what would that be?
2: Well, it would be against our policy, but it would be uh, stealing the fees from the firm if they went did not come to the
0: firm because they belonged to the law firm. Prosecutor Waters moves on to ask Mr. Crosby about his personal observations of Alex Murdoch and his habits.
1: Let me ask you a little bit about the defendant himself. Uh, what's, What's your observation of the defendant's cell phone usage? He was somebody who used his cell
2: phone a, a, a lot, uh, I mean, more, m- much more than I, I do. He was always
1: on his cell phone. And describe a little bit about your observations of him as a lawyer. What were his skills as a lawyer? What was he good at? He was
2: a, a, a very good lawyer. He was good with uh, people, uh, very, very good at reading people, very good at, at understanding people, and very good at making people believe that uh, he cared about them and um, building a a rapport and and trust with them. And he was very good with uh, strategizing against insurance companies and opposing lawyers. Ultimately, he got oftentimes uh, results that uh, the lawyers in the firm would be really amazed at what a good job uh, he was able to do.
1: Was he good at understanding the emotional value of a case and being able to leverage that?
2: Yes, I I mean, that that goes hand in hand to what I just said. It was very much a strength that he had.
1: Was he a a good technical lawyer? Did he have a lot of academic and technical skills as a lawyer? Well,
2: I'm not going to judge his uh, intelligence because I think he's very intelligent. As far as being a a real student of the law, it probably wasn't. um, And and never developed a, a technical expertise like some lawyers will. Some lawyers specialize in. One thing, like medical malpractice, and that's all they do. But he didn't. He was more of a general practitioner.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job
1: sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people
0: today. Prosecutor Creighton Waters continues his questioning of Ronnie Crosby by focusing on the witness's observation regarding the defendant's financial circumstances.
1: Around the time of the recession... Back in uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, did you ever have any conversations with the defendant uh, and gain a general understanding of his financial condition at that time? I did. And tell the jury what that was, please.
2: Well, for a number of years, uh, Barrett and one of his non-lawyer business partners, I mean, Alec and one of his non-lawyer business partners, uh, a guy named Barrett Boulware, they did a lot of real estate transactions, you know, just buying land and speculating on it, and um, I think uh leading up to that they had purchased some property that uh speculating that they could sell it uh maybe some developmental uh property and of course we all know what happened in 2008 2009 that market went bad and and i think it i think uh both barrett as well as maybe some of the other partners did not have uh the financial ability to to deal with those loans that they had financed it and so i think Ellick was having to carry a lot of that and it put a strain uh, on him financially.
1: At some point after that, to your uh, discussions with him, and to your knowledge of the cases in the firm, did he have some big cases that um, you thought had rectified that strain, that financial strain? Yes,
2: there was a a string of uh, rather large cases, some of them I actually worked on with him, that resulted in uh, very large settlements that would have been my understanding, would have certainly been sufficient to to rectify that, as well as, I believe, ultimately, some of that property that was causing a strain was – they were able to sell it, so long answer,
1: yes. And what were some of those cases that you thought, at least, had rectified any financial issues that he had? Uh, A case referred to as Plyler,
2: um, and these are internally the way we refer to them. uh, Pinckney, which also had a companion case. Thomas, I think the Plyler case was actually four cases, but we referred to it as one. And then he had a case called Badger. Those cases would, would, would have been large cases.
1: From your understanding that the legitimate legal fees from those cases were very, very large?
2: Yes, the law firm earned and, and subsequently
0: uh, Mr. Murdoch would have earned uh, good income off, off those cases. Creighton Waters next pivots to questioning Mr. Crosby about the lawsuit prompted by the boating accident caused by the defendant's son, Paul, which resulted in the death of Mallory Beach.
1: Are you uh, generally familiar with what's called the boat case? Yes. And is that the February 2019 boat wreck in which uh, Miss Mallory Beach was killed? Yes, uh, Miss Beach actually worked for my wife. Somebody you knew? Uh, yeah, I knew her as well as the other girls,
2: me and Paul.
1: Uh, as a result of that boat case, did, was it your understanding that uh, the defendant had been civilly sued as a result of that? Yes, he, he,
2: there was a lawsuit uh, brought against Ellick and others.
1: Moving on from the boat case, did you ever have any conversation with, uh, after the boat case, did you have any conversation with the Ellick about structuring his fees in, in a particular case?
2: You know, that, that conversation uh, had come up Around the office with not only him but other lawyers over, over the years. To my knowledge, I was the only lawyer to ever do that. But he did. Uh, sometime in the spring of 2021, he had a conversation
1: with me about that. And what was the conversation you had with him?
2: I think it was just generally asking me, you know, how it was, you know, done, um, whether I thought it was a good idea, what the process was um that type of thing and i i I don't recall the the very specifics but i do recall telling him that given the low interest rates uh that it wouldn't be very fruitful if you had high interest rates and you can buy into a a lot on an annuity it would make sense but you know there were pretty much zero interest rates during that time you
1: made that point did he have any response to that
2: other than he was thinking about about doing that.
1: Now you mentioned that you uh, you're actually the only one in the firm that you recall doing an, uh, structuring some fees. Is that correct?
2: Yes, and, and I think that that's a fact, not just that I recall.
1: And though you actually set up a real structure, correct? Well, uh, yeah, I did. I did. All right. You didn't just divert the fees into another account and spend them, correct?
2: No, and, and to clarify, and I think uh, Ms. Seckinger touched on it was. The, the traditional way of doing it to avoid taxes until you're older is you, you, you never take what's called constructive possession of the money. So whoever, if the, if it's an insurance company or whoever's paying the money, would pay to the annuity company, and they would buy an annuity, and you would have a contract, and um, and then whatever the terms is when you would start receiving that money, and then you'd start paying taxes on it. You can, you can take a, a structure without there's since then become other ones but they don't have the tax advantages, um, they don't really make much sense. Where, where you can take the money
0: and then buy, basically just buying an annuity. Waters next asks the witness about events surrounding Gloria Satterfield, the former housekeeper for the Murdoch family who died after an accident at the Moselle Road property. Uh, do you know a person
1: by the name of Gloria Satterfield? Or do you know of a person by the name of Gloria Satterfield? No,
2: I, I, I knew Gloria. I knew her, knew her for a lot of years.
1: Yeah. And did she have any uh, employment relationship with the defendant, to your knowledge?
2: Yes, she uh, she did. And when my children were uh, first born, she helped my wife out a little bit with some laundry and stuff.
1: Uh, what, to your understanding, happened to her, if anything?
2: My understanding was that she was tripped by some of. Uh, Ellic and Maggie's dogs and hit her head and um, approximately three weeks later, uh, she died. I don't think she ever came out of the hospital.
1: Did you ever talk to the defendant about that event?
2: I recall having a brief conversation. It really wasn't a conversation. It was more him saying that the dogs knocked it down and that the kids were going to sue him uh, for Gloria's
1: death. The kids, which kids are you talking about?
2: Uh, glorious, glorious! Uh, two boys, I believe she has.
1: When you say the kids were going to sue him. Did he say it in the fashion of that was going to be an aggressive suit, or did he say it in the in the way that he was going to help out? Oh,
2: I, I understood exactly that he was. It was going to be a friendly insurance claim, so to speak, so that hey, this happened in hopes that the insurance company would probably pay them some amount of money. To, to I, I took it to help help them out.
1: Did you ever have any other conversations with him about that case other
2: than that one? never had another conversation, uh, well, no, I've
0: never had another conversation with him about it. Creighton Waters then moves on to the case which first prompted the PMPED firm's chief financial officer to question the financial activities of the defendant. Are you familiar with the case known as the Ferris case or the
1: Mack Trucks case?
2: Yes, I'm very familiar with it.
1: Did you have any involvement in that case?
2: Yes. Uh, early on, I had some involvement. Uh, I was asked to, to get involved because it dealt with product a uh, product failure, which is uh, going back to your reference. It's sort of been my specialty over the years. Um, it was where a drive shaft had fallen out of a Mack truck and caused a motorist to have an accident and. When we looked into it, and it turns out there was a recall on it, and so pretty much made it where it wasn't going to be much of a fight about max responsibility. And so I knew it then, and then when uh, I didn't do anything else in it until it was coming up to trial, and I, I spent a lot of time talking with uh, Alec about... Evidentiary issues, witnesses, how they were trying the case, and the posture of it, that type of thing. So, yeah, I was familiar with it.
1: Okay. Did you ultimately get involved? Were you one of the lawyers representing the Ferris's? No, I, I did not help him try it. Uh, did he have a, an outside lawyer associated with that, or were there lawyers from other firms associated with that? Well, as
2: I referenced earlier, sometimes there's more than just two law firms. There was a, a lawyer, a friend of ours in Columbia, that got named uh, Mr. Ridgeway got Mr. Chris Wilson involved and then in turn uh, Chris Wilson asked Alec to get involved um, which Alec and Chris had worked together a good bit over the years so, so there was three law firms.
1: So ultimately did Alec and these other lawyers try the Ferris case? They did. And Did they get a recovery in that case? They did. And do you know how much uh, Alec Murdoch's share of the recovery was supposed to be?
2: The verdict was several million dollars I believe that would have been in February of 2021 I believe the share that was supposed to go to PMPED was 792,000 that's our portion
1: of the fees you corrected me that was the amount that was supposed to go to the firm correct that's correct 792,000 dollars did you ever in May of 2021 did you ever have any conversation with Jeannie Seconder about those fees I did. And tell me what that conversation was, please.
2: It was sometime in close relation to Alec asking me about structuring attorney's fees. I walked in Lee Cope's office. Lee and Jeannie were having a conversation about that issue and her efforts to get all the paperwork on the Ferris matter, and and, and and she was frustrated, she thought she was getting a run around both from Chris Wilson and Alec. and then she mentioned something to me about that he had suggested to her that he was trying to hide fees from the voting case. All
1: right, and what was your uh, reaction to that when you heard that? About- Do you want me to say what I said? Say the, you can say the sanitized version or you can say the real version, either way.
2: I said, oh, fuck, no, we're not. And why was that your reaction? Well, because to do that, under any circumstance, was illegal, unethical, and he would be putting us at risk, and we absolutely uh, were not going to participate in anything that, that was illegal, unethical, or subjected us to um, liability or... you know, created issues with the South Carolina Bar.
1: Was it the uh, discussion of the firm leadership that that needed to be gotten to the bottom of to make sure that didn't happen?
2: Well, it was Lee, I, and Jeannie, and we put it in her hands because if she told us that she was uh, being told it was in trust at Chris Wilson's office, you know, I I had no reason to, to doubt that. I thought he was just trying to take it out. In some other way, so it didn't go through our system or something, which it would also have been tax fraud on, on, on our part not to have that accounted for because we would have got a 1099 at some point in time. And just it, it was a myriad reasons why that wasn't going to ever happen. But I thought if they're saying it was there, you need to just take care of it, get the money. And I didn't think any more about it, to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't think it was any stealing going on or anything. I thought that. Okay, he's got pressure on him from this Bowdoin case, and maybe he maybe thinks if he did an annuity out of Chris's trust account, that it wouldn't be accounted for, but it ultimately had to be accounted for, and I knew that. I, I do it involved in a lot of our overseeing you know a lot of the accounting and, and understand it, and there's just no damn way we were going to do that.
1: At that point in time, you just said you didn't think there was any stealing going on at that
2: point. Not yet, at least. Right. Now, that 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 never
0: came up during that period. We're talking late May of 2021. Creighton Waters next asks Ronnie Crosby about his personal relationship and familiarity with Alex Murdoch and his family. You've uh, known the defendant since the 90s? I have. Uh, did you get to know his family?
1: Yes, I did. Did you get to know Maggie? I knew Maggie. Did you know her fairly
0: well? I felt like I did, yes. He's a very nice person. Did you know Paul? Yes. Tell me a little bit of how you knew Paul. Mr. Crosby becomes emotional and tries to compose himself before he responds. Alex Murdoch appears to have a visceral response to the moment, rocking back and forth in his seat. Um, I knew Paul
2: since he was born. Um, Both he and Buster had always referred to me as Uncle Ronnie. We lived just across the way from each other, so I I, I got to know him. I don't know if he's used to, when he got into hunting, he hunted a lot on my property, he and Buster. Um, I have a farm right here in Collin County where I grew up and so I got to know him, you know, that way and then Paul was, didn't think this would be that hard, Paul was really good with, with kids and he took a liking to my son, who's younger but he spent a lot of time with him. He'd take him hunting, fishing, they did a lot of hog hunting together. Paul had some hog dogs and um, you know, just was around him a lot. He had a great personality. Just really, you know, somebody, a kid I really loved, you know. Paul would come over to your property a good bit? Yes, and, and then, you know, as, and then sometimes as, as my son got older, he would go over to uh, to
0: Moselle and hunt with Barker, and hunt with Paul. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the testimony of Ronnie Crosby. Also, check out the Crime Story Podcast Night Raid wherever you get your podcasts. And, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.